Amen. You guys can have a seat. So uh, I'm, I'm David, by the way. I'm the teaching pastor here at Grace City. Thank you all for being here. If I hadn't met you yet, thank you so much for being here and being a part of our community. I've got one of these like plastic wristbands on, and I realized that like I'm officially of the age where like if you're wearing a wristband, you, nobody assumes that you went to something cool like a music festival or something like that. It's either was he in the hospital or was it? A, and so thankfully it was not that. I'm, it's a little league baseball tournament this weekend, and we've got one more day to play, and so that's what that's about. So if it distracts you, I tried to hide it. It comes out and it's like this bright yellow thing like waving all over the place. That's what that's about. So I've outed myself. The secret is no more. Um, But hey, look, uh, I want to get after it because the sermon that we've got this morning, like Rich said, this is the very first sermon I ever preached at Grace City. So very first sermon I ever preached just over 10 years ago. Now, I've used bits and pieces of it since then uh, to, to kind of flesh out some other, other topics as well. So some of it might seem familiar to you. But when I first gave this sermon, we were in the Gulf Guarantee Insurance Building on the I-55. So right across the, the interstate from the Piccadilly, fine eating establishment, uh, right across the street from there, uh, that's where we, we first met as a church. And we had, had finished with some of our prayer services, and we were having our first ever soft opening, if you will. Basically, we invited a few friends and family just to see if we could actually do a worship service. And this was the sermon that I preached on that day. It was fitting then, and I believe it's still fitting 10 years later. Because the question that we asked that day was, how do you build a church, right? We were thinking about, we were feeling like God has called us to plant a church. So how do you actually do this? How do you plant a church? Well, 10 years later, I think the question is still fitting because how you build a church directly impacts, how do you grow one? How do you continue to grow a church even through different seasons, even through different phases of ministry? And so, yes, the question still holds, how do you plant? How do you build? How do you grow a church? And when we were in those early days, I mean, we were really just plagued by this question. I mean, more specifically, like, how do you, how do you plant a church that is God-honoring, gospel-centered to where men and women can come and, and maybe hear uh, of Christ for the very first time or hear of Christ for the thousandth time and be drawn into a deeper relationship with Him? Like, how do we do this and do this well? Now, trust me, there are hundreds, maybe in thousands of books on church planning or, or growing a church, right? And some of them are like, top 10 mistakes church planners make. You know, they're a little terrifying to read in the early days. And so like different books like that, some were helpful, some, some, some weren't. But I was really wanting there to be like a step one, step two, step three type of instruction manual for, for planning a church and getting one off the ground. Um, that, um, that might be out there. I never found it. Um, but even if it was there, I struggle with how effective it would be because different cultures, different contexts require different types of churches because there's just so much that goes into planning a church. There's so much that goes into growing a church. And so, you know, would it even be that helpful? But yet at the same time, yes, even there's different cultures, different contexts, are there some overarching principles that God wants instilled in every single church? And so we just kept coming back to the question, how do you build a church? How do you build a place of worship? How do you grow a place of worship? What turns out in Exodus 25, God is actually giving line-by-line instructions to the Israelites on building a place of worship. And the place of worship that they were going to build, to build is known as the tabernacle, or it's the dwelling place of God among God's people. And I want you to see it. Go to Exodus 25, verses 1 through 8. It's going to be our primary text. It's going to take about five minutes to get there, um, because i got to give you a, a fair amount of context. We're all on the same page, kind of where we are in the story before, before we jump into it. 
So this, uh, the, basically the 400 years before Exodus 25, for almost all of them, the Israelites have been enslaved to the Egyptian empire. They've been working the fields, making bricks, mining for gold, and building Pharaoh's opulent palaces. The entire time they're in slavery, they're also holding on to the promises that God has made to their forefather Abraham that one day his descendants would return back to a promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. But also part of this promise is that when they leave the land of their captors, they will leave with great possessions and great wealth. And in the first few chapters of the book of Exodus, we have that story. God calls Moses to lead the Israelites out of slavery into the promised land. We have a few chapters where Pharaoh needs some encouragement to let the people go. And we've got the 10 plagues where finally they're convinced he's going to let the people go. But on the way out, Pharaoh then commands the Egyptians, his own people, to give the Israelites gold, silver, and supplies for the journey. So that happens, right? They, they leave Egypt with gold, silver, supplies, and in that way, the Israelites kind of plundered Egypt, and they leave Egypt well-supplied, well-financed, fulfilling the promise that God had made to Abraham over 400 years ago. If that wasn't miraculous enough, if seeing the 10 plagues wasn't miraculous enough, on that exodus, right, you've got the story of the parting of the Red Sea. They saw that dramatic act of God on their behalf, but also daily, they were being led by God. They were being led by God as a pillar of cloud by day. Think, so journeying through the desert, the pillar of cloud, think the coolness of that, that that would provide. So just an, another example of God's grace. And at night in the desert, it actually gets cold. He's leading them by a pillar of fire by night. So daily, they're seeing these physical manifestations of God, pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. And from time to time, God would call Moses up on the mountain to meet with him, to commune with him. And when that happens, it was this awe-inspiring event, cloud descend on the mountain, thunder, lightning, ominous, just so this group of people perhaps have seen more physical manifestations of the divine power and sovereignty of God, perhaps more than any other people group in history. And they're seeing this day in and day out. So they're very cognizant of the presence of God, but also very fearful of him. Very fearful of him. In Exodus 25, this starts to change in some ways. God continues to progressively reveal himself to his people. And when he does, He's going to give them instructions for building the dwelling place or the tabernacle of God. The Israelites, as they were on this journey, they were, they, as they were traveling, they were living in tents uh, as, as they made their way to the promised land. So when God gives instructions for the tabernacle, he's literally telling them, I want you to build the tent for God. And so that's what was happening. So that leads to all sorts of questions. One of the ones that I had was, isn't God too big for a tent, right? Like, isn't he too big for a tabernacle? And for that matter, I mean, like, again, like God's omnipresent. He's everywhere. So do we really need a place to worship him? Do we really need a place or a space to worship him? And, and, and carry it even further, do it like with, with, with churches. If God is everywhere, do I need to go to a place to worship him? Can I just worship him from home? Like we had to do that in 2020 for much of the year, right? Due to COVID, we were online, you know, thankfully we had that technology to kind of help facilitate that. And so like the short answer to that is yes, you can, but we also kind of felt that it wasn't quite, that wasn't all the way, like it was good to get us through the moment, but there was, we missed something, right? We, we missed being able to gather. We missed being able to, to come together because with that, like having a place of worship, it, it, it allows us to, 
have a place where we tangibly create space for God in our lives. Now, I'm not saying we make some sort of graven image or something like that, but it's us being deliberate with our interaction with him. It's us being deliberate with our interaction. It's creating a space, creating an environment that removes distractions. It removes distractions and helps us connect with the Lord. God knows our five senses. He created us with them. And God knows that we need designated places where we can come together to worship him. Designated places that help us remove distractions, focus in on him, focus in on his word. Now, I will say that those places can can look very different in a lot of different settings, right? I mean, those types of places can happen maybe with a community group in a home or, or maybe with a church meeting in a vacant storefront or maybe a church meeting in an old Bonanza steakhouse that's been converted to a Gulf County insurance building or maybe a school in an auditorium at JA or maybe a sanctuary that's been renovated. Or if we were Israelites traveling to a promised land, a tent in a desert. And in Exodus 25, God gives to Moses the instructions for building the tabernacle and all the items that it was supposed to be supplied with. And he starts by telling Moses to gather the supplies. And this is where we drop in the text. Exodus 25, 1 through 8. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering from, for me from everyone whose hearts prompts them to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze. Blue, purple, scarlet, yarn, and fine linen. Goat hair. Ram skins dyed red. Another type of durable leather. Acacia wood. Olive oil for the light. Spices, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and the breastpiece. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. So God says you are to receive an offering from those whose hearts prompt them to give. From those whose hearts prompt them to give. So translation, don't force them. Don't manipulate them. Don't guilt them, don't shame them, don't bribe them. Hey, if you do this, God will do this. Like, there's none of that happening. This is, hey, just put the work in front of them. This is happening. This is what God's calling us to do. This is what God's leading us to do. Just put the work in front of the people. Cast that vision and then receive from them an offering from those whose hearts prompt them to give. So you see kind of instructions for how to gather supplies, for how to be able to bring the resources together to build this place of worship. Put the vision in front and then trust me, I'm going to prompt their hearts and receive from those an offering whose hearts prompt them to give. But then I read the list and it's a little bit weird, like gold, silver, goat hair. I love, it says another type of durable leather. Um, like in the footnotes of my Bible for that, it says possibly the hides of large aquatic animals. I mean, that just makes you want to do some research, right? Like, what was this? And so, but I mean, there's, there's just this random list of, of things that are going together. But in that, I mean, what you should see is the list is all inclusive. There's gold on there. But there's also acacia wood, which is all over the Sinai region. There's, there's fine linen on that list, but there's also goat hair. And so every part of the community, all parts of the community would be able to contribute something to the work, right? And it would be able to give something. Now, remember, they're all, former, they're all coming out of slavery. So they all are, are coming out of that situation. But yes, there's some of them per, that perhaps would have been more well supplied by some of the Egyptians when they made uh, the, the, uh, the escape, when they were able to be let go. But nevertheless, what you see in this again is 
every part, every part of the community, every person from the community could be able to contribute something. Then you layer on top of that the types of services that would be needed. In Exodus 35, we get a list of all those different types of skills. Goldsmiths, silversmiths, metal workers, stone cutters, carpenters, artisans, designers, embroiders, weavers. All of those that have been used to build the Pharaoh's palaces now are going to have their purpose, their skill, their training redeemed and put towards the work of God. And, and, and you see just the cross-section of skills that were to be needed. And oh, by the way, if goat hair is needed, then somebody's got to farm the goats, right? So shepherds and farmers are going to be needed in this as well. Again, the entire Israelite community could contribute something to the making and construction of the tabernacle. What you should hear in this, this job, too big for one man, Moses. Too big for one man. God instructs the community to build the place of worship, and the community responded. In Exodus 36, 2 through 7, we see the, the workmen come to do the work, and it's like when they show up, everybody has their own Lowe's or Home Depot, like that much supplies have been gathered and put at their feet. So much so to where Moses actually has to tell the Israelites, hey, stop bringing the offerings. You're slowing them down. We're overwhelming them with supplies. But from that, you can see the power of a community with a singular focus. At Grace City, from day one, we wanted community to be at the core of what we do. We, we see the value of community modeled throughout all of Scripture. Like, we believe in personal responsibility. I mean, it, like you and, your, and your, your walk, your individual relationship with the Lord, we believe in those things to be sure. But we know that our faith cannot be lived out within the confines of our own person. Your faith cannot be lived out just between your two ears, right? Like it's not just in your head. It's not just within your own heart. Like this is something that has to be expressed outwardly. And so for that to happen, we've got to be in community with one another. The love that you have for God cannot terminate on yourself. It must terminate on him and on others. The two greatest commandments, love the Lord your God, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. To love our neighbor, we've got to be in community with someone other than yourself. Right? We believe in community, whether it's community through growth groups and community groups here at Grace City, or remembering that as a church, we're placed here to love the community around us. We believe that it is in community where we learn of God's love for us and we demonstrate God's love for us, where we can practice God's love for, for one another. From day one, we've wanted this to be at the core of who we are and how God leads us to do ministry. Because in Exodus 25, we see it takes a community to build the tabernacle. It takes a community to build the tabernacle. And then I love what it says, once the supplies have been gathered and the workmen procured, verse eight, what does he say? Then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell in it. That's not how it ends. The way the verse ends, it says, have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. I will dwell among them. As the community serves God in this way, as the community serves each other by bringing what they can, serving how they can, God says, I will come and I will dwell among them. So no, God's not confined to a tent, right? He's not confined to a tabernacle. Sure, it's a space of worship. It's, it's a place of worship. But even more than that, and catch this, even more than that, it's a visual representation that God's not distant anymore. That God's not just a cloud on top of a mountain. He's not just pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. God's not distant. He really never was, but he is drawing near. And now he's dwelling among the Israelites. 
And we see in these first eight verses, God giving the instructions for building a place of worship. And it begins with this communal effort that is orchestrated by God. On the flip side, we see man's ideas for building a place of worship in Exodus 32, 1 through 8. Maybe you've heard this story before. Exodus chapter 32, we read this. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, he was up on the mountain meeting with the Lord. They gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, take off your gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. It's the same group of people that saw it all. They saw the plagues, the Red Sea part, pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night, cloud up on the mountain, and yet this is their idea of how to have a place of worship. This is their idea of how to worship. And, and really what happens is they're living out a, a principle that Paul taught in Romans 1.25 where it talks about how we're, as humans we're created to worship, but so often we're tempted to worship and serve created things rather than our creator. That happens here. They settle far too easily. They go to Aaron. They go to one man. They go to Aaron and say, you make us gods. You make us gods. You make us something to worship. They go to Aaron and say, you make us a worship experience. You make for us a worship experience. And how does Aaron reply? He simply says, bring me your gold. You want me to do this? Bring me your gold. God says, bring, God says, bring what your heart prompts. Man says, bring your gold. With the tabernacle, there's deliberateness. With the tabernacle, there's intentionality. There's preparation to worship God. As they're bringing these supplies, as they're doing all this work, they know we're doing this to worship the Lord who's gonna dwell among us. There's intentionality, there's, there's planning, there's preparation to worship the Lord. With a golden calf, no planning, no intentionality, no thought. Let's just melt down the gold and we'll worship whatever Aaron puts in front of us, right? We'll worship whatever Aaron makes. The tabernacle takes a community to build. The calf just takes one man. Calf, quick and easy, directed by man. The tabernacle, that is a communal effort orchestrated by God, which means it's probably going to be a lot slower definitely going to be messier, right? Like, I mean, goldsmiths, silversmiths, stonecutters, all those guys get together and you know one goldsmith's like, I don't like to do it that way. This is the way I do it. The silversmith's like, you're doing it that way? That's crazy. That's so inefficient. Like, you know those conversations happen, right? I mean, they, they've all got, this is my workflow. This is how I do it. This is what you need. And so all that's coming together, which means they've got to work through all that, which means there, there's occasions for conflict, but also means there's occasions for grace. 
There's occasions for understanding. There's occasions for love and for mercy. It is going to be way slower. Way slower. But it is going to be a work done in such a way to where God will be coming and dwelling among his people. The calf, quick and easy with one man. The tabernacle, communal effort orchestrated by God. My prayer 10 years ago, my prayer 10 years ago was that Grace City would never be something that Rich and I or the staff could fashion out of whatever monetary offerings brought by people that, that just give it and say create a worship experience for us. But that Grace City would be a place, would be a place where the offerings, whether it is money or it's services or it's time or it's skills or whatever people are wired with, where those offerings, when God prompts them to give into this, well, they would come, all these offerings would come together and create a place of worship to God and that would help us in our love for others, that we would come together in a, this community type of way to be a place, to build a place where God would come and dwell among the builders. That was my prayer 10 years ago, and it's still my prayer when the new guy comes in. Church, hear me on this. You cannot look at him. You cannot look at him and say, you build this for us. You cannot look at him and say, you create the worship experience. Like, you can't look at the staff, as awesome as they are, you can't look at the staff and say, you do this now. You make this for us, right? That's just, that's, that's not how God forms places of worship. That's not how God forms churches. Because these, these are communities of faith. This is a called out assembly of people that he joins together, right? It's not just a worship service with a guy with a guitar, a piano, and a Bible just standing in front of you doing this, right? This isn't just a, a family ministry, as awesome as it is, where, where like Emily has a, you know, a lesson and a game and a skit for the kids, right? This isn't just student ministry where Stevie's just standing in front of you for 20 minutes and then they got a cool way to hang out or something like it's not just those are parts of it but it's not just that it's it's a collective effort of parents and and people are like I want to love kids today I want to love students today I want to pour into them I want to help show them the timeless truths of the text you know it's it's this collective effort of the community coming together offering to God what he prompts them to give and then God dwelling among his people we must be careful in how we continue to build Grace City because that's, it's how you plan a church. It's how you grow a church. It's how you continue to build a church, a communal effort orchestrated by God. But if we're continuing to plant the church, and, and here's, here's, I don't like, people still is like, what do you do? It's like, well, I planted a church. I'm a church planner, but we've been going for 10 years. I don't know when you drop that. Like, I don't know. It's, in some ways, it's like, how old is your kid? 154 months, really? Like, you know, like, you know I don't know when that's supposed to transition out. Um, so I don't know when that happens, but it's just kind of always wired that way. So, um, but so as, you know, as we continue to plant the church, set the roots deep, or if we're, or if we're gonna continue to build, then we need to make sure that the foundation is right or we're setting roots in good soil, to use that, that, that part of the metaphor. In 1 Corinthians 3, the Apostle Paul is writing to a church plant in Corinth, and he's telling them what the foundation should be. And in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11, he says there's to be Christ and Christ alone. So I want you to see this text. I'm going to back up, and I'm going to give uh, verse 10 to you as well. He says this, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. Here's verse 11. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, 
their work will be shown for what it is because the day, talking about the day of judgment, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. We're going to get to that text, but what I want to do to help get you there is, is to also help you know Christ is the next progression from the tabernacle in the desert of God dwelling among the Israelites to now Christ dwelling in the hearts and lives of, of, of his people, right? So it's the next progression. John 1:14, a verse that we study around Advent season, says the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The original language there is actually the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, right? So it's either, John is calling us back to how Jesus really is the next step in this progression. The word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. When Christ dwells, um, dwelt among us, dwells among us, he reveals the truth to us that yes, we are sinners. We are sinners separated from God. His sinless, perfect life reveals to us that truth that we can do nothing, nothing to earn our way into heaven. However, Christ is also full of grace in that he takes our sin onto himself and makes a way for his righteousness to be credited in return so that we can have a relationship with a holy and righteous God. That's the gospel, right? That's the gospel. That's the central core message of our faith. But what it is, it's God didn't stay distant. He never was. He's drawn near. And now through Christ, he's made a way for us to be one with him and one with the Father. For us to be with him because he's come and he's dwelt among us. He's dwelt within his people. And so Christ, the, the truth of who he is and what he's done, the work on his cross, his teaching and his, his word, that Paul is saying is the foundation for our church. Gospel message to be the foundation for the church. And yes, for the past decade at Grace City, we've done everything that we can to try to keep the gospel centered of all that we do. Are we, do we have a 100% success rate on that? Probably not. But I can tell you this, it's, we want it to be, right? Through every ministry, every program, every task, everything that we do as a church, we want it to somehow, some way, either speak directly to, mirror, echo, or point to the redemption that's found in the gospel of Christ and how that enables us to love God and to love our neighbor. Fundamental to what we do as a church, Paul says it has to be the foundation. And then not only is it the foundation, you gotta be careful in how you build. You gotta be careful in how you build. He has the, the illustration about gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, and how to be, be revealed from the day of judgment. So like basically it's like if you build something out of gold, stones, uh, Silver, like that's going to withstand a fire. Wood, hair, straw, it's going to be burned up. And so there's, a, there's this uh, comparison between materials that take intention and preparation and hard work, gold, silver, costly things like that takes intentionality to mine and prepare and use in the building. Wood, hair, straw, that's more quick and easy that you can just kind of throw together. And so sa same thing with, with a church, right? Like you can, you can, Try to build a church quick and easy. And I would say that's a church that's not centered on the work of Christ, but maybe centered on a cultural issue, 
hey, come to us, you'll know where we stand on this cultural issue and we can maybe draw all the people who are like-minded, we'll come, we'll rally behind that issue. Maybe it's a political agenda, maybe it's a political bent. Hey, we're a church that breaks this way, we're a church that goes this way, and they can build their church in and around that. Maybe it's, hey, this is the coolest new way to do ministry, come check us out, we're into this type of worship. And, and, and so, like, you can do that, and it's, it's, like, churches can pop up, in a sense, with those, but I'm telling you, those do not stand because it's not grounded and anchored in Christ and it's not leading people into a deeper relationship with him. However, if our foundation is Christ and at every turn we're trying to make much of him, study, submit, and apply his teachings, follow his way of living, then, 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 and follow his way of living and as such help us be devoted to loving others as he has loved us, we will be building a church with value out of substance and it will stand up when the trials come, even if it's a trial of a transition in leadership, right? How do you build a church? We ensure that the foundation is Christ and Christ alone, and we build it in the context of community, where each man and each woman can respond as God prompts them to give, to contribute to a place of worship, can contribute to those around them, and contribute to the work that God is doing You grow a church the same way, even in a time of leadership transition. Because what it is, we remind ourselves, we're mindful, it's not one person. It's not one person. And look, church, if that's the approach, it's the wrong approach. Because it is the community responding as God prompts them and ensuring that all is grounded and anchored to the good news of Christ. Questions that I've put to the church 10 years ago. Challenge, charge that I put 10 years ago. What would your life look like if you lived believing the truth that God didn't stay distant, but he drew near? That Christ came to this earth so that you can discover life in him? Would you still grapple with fear, doubt, insecurity? Or would you know that you believe in and serve a sovereign and powerful God who loves you? who values you, who cherishes you, and desires for you to know him and be welcomed into his family? Would you still pursue selfish ends, or would you know that God has called you to steward the blessings of God for the good of his kingdom and for the good of others? What would our church look like? What would our church look like if we lived out this belief that God wants us, God wants our church to be a tangible representation of God's presence in the city of Jackson? to be a tangible representation of God's presence in this world? Would we view church as something that's just for the betterment of me on Sundays? Something just for me on Sundays? Or would we take it to heart that our church is to be an agent of redemption for the city? An agent of redemption that God uses to lead men and women to find their hope, faith, and salvation in him? What would our church look like if we lived as a community that truly cared for one another and had one singular purpose of Christ glorified? Would we gossip, backbite, and complain like can characterize some places of faith? Or would we maybe somehow, some way, get a glimpse of what John 13, 35 means when Jesus says, by this all men will know you are my disciples by the way you love one another. So the charge that I gave 10 years ago was this. May you know that Christ loved you so much that he, came to dwelt and, that he came and dwelt among us and was full of grace and truth. May we as a church know that there is no limit to what God can accomplish through a gospel-centered community of believers. With this knowledge, let there be action. 
with that knowing let there be doing. And 10 years ago, I looked at a group of people and said, let's build a church. And y'all did it. Y'all brought this community of faith into existence. Now, I know so many people in this room, you're like, David, I've never been in the Gulf Guarantee Insurance Building. But I'm telling you, you have built this church. Because people that were there, they were handed a ministry and they stewarded it for however long God had numbered their days. And they passed it off to the next person who picked it up and stewarded it well and passed it off and picked it up and stewarded it well. And here we are, 10 years later. You guys did it and are doing it. And so to that end, let's continue the effort. Let's continue the work so that we can always be building a church where people experience the love of Christ and join in his redeeming work. Let's always be building a church where people can know they can come here and discover life in Christ. Let me pray for us. God, we love you and we thank you. We thank you. We thank you for this text that guided us 10 years ago and that can guide us again today. God, we thank you for um, helping us see these principles in your word. God, I pray that they're not just ideals or something that we pursue, but that, God, I pray they do define us. I pray that at Grace City we would always be building a church that is, is grounded in the gospel, that is anchored to you and the hope and the word that you have for us. God, I always pray that as we build your church, as we grow your church, Lord God, that it is a communal effort, that we don't ever look at one person or one volunteer or one staff member and say, you do this for us, but that, God, we all carry the responsibility and the burden and the joy of knowing this is a place that is built by a community, that we are building this in such a way to where you come and you dwell among the builders. God, we love you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for your text. God, help us uh, live with the boldness and, and the conviction um, that you are our hope, uh, that all this is centered in and upon you, and that all this is dependent upon you and the work that you do in your people. God, we love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, church, every.